Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Meet the Andersons. Yes! They're all awaiting a big event. For your information, this is exactly what I ate when I was pregnant with all of you. But Les is excited about an even bigger event. Less than 48 hours away, the people at the Department of Motor Vehicles are going to be handing you your license. His reputation is riding on it. Do you think there's any chance we could get it Saturday night? Not a chance in hell, then. The date of a lifetime depends on it. Mercedes Lane. But it doesn't look good. You failed. He failed? Honey, what is wrong with you? Something. Is this the end for Les Anderson? I thought that we had a date tonight. An innocent girl. Harmless drive. What could possibly go wrong? See, license whoa, to drop. Hold on, hold on. Uh, you got some arrest. Oh? Oh, okay. Les knew that he could regret it. This is it. I'm up. I'm up. I'm up. He knew he might be sorry. Aren't you drinking rather heavily? This Mercedes has a dead battery. Okay, okay, do your breathing. But he did it anyway. There's nothing to worry about. It's like a sign. A sign from the big Mr. Goodwrench in the sky. Will Les get the car home in one piece? Will his father leave Les in one piece? You are damn lucky your mother didn't go into labor no, time. What? License to drive. Does it have a happy ending? Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to talk about the movie License to Drive from 1988. The studio was 20th Century Fox. The release date was July 6, 1988. The running time, 88 minutes. The rating was PG-13. The budget was $8 million, and the box office took in $22.4 million, making it the 44th ranked movie of 1988. Rotten Tomatoes, no surprise, gives it 17% rotten from 18 reviews. Surprisingly, Roger Ebert didn't give it a poor review. He gave it 2.5 out of 4 stars, and here's his review. Big city kids don't have to worry so much because they can always arrive by bus. But in the suburbs and small towns, one of the most excruciating agonies of adolescence is the experience of being dropped off by your parents at a party, especially while your friends are watching. Parents are an embarrassment when you are 15 because they offer documentary proof that you don't have your driver's license. License to Drive remembers feelings like that, and it brings back the whole complex of emotions about being 16 and taking your test. Nobody ever has to ask which test and getting your license. It begins with the daydreams of red Corvettes and then cuts to one of those cautionary driver ed films in which as little of a quarter of an inch of water can cause the dreaded phenomenon of hydroplaning as a car spins wildly out of control, its hapless occupants trapped inside. 
My driver's education teacher in high school was Oscar Adams, who survived thousands of harrowing rides with teenagers who hit the accelerator and not the brake at the approach of a cement truck. <laughs> he taught us how to back up, do turnabouts, parallel park, stick shift, and perform all the other maneuvers that meant we were ready to be trusted behind the wheel. To this day, I cringe when friends commit feckless U-turns in the middle of intersections, breezily assuring me that everyone does it. Nobody taught by Oscar Adams would ever commit such a crime, and thousands now dead in traffic accidents would be grilling their weenies on the backyard grill if Oscar Adams had taught everyone how to drive. The first half of License to Drive, which is mostly concerned with taking the lessons and passing the tests and getting the license, is very funny. The second half, which is mostly an extended car chase scene in which a hapless teenager's grandfather's Cadillac is wrecked by a drunk, is much more predictable. I would like to state, as a general theory, the notion that physical humor involving automobiles has more or less been exhausted for our lifetime. But License Drive is more than passable summer entertainment, especially when it identifies with the yearnings of its young heroes to get behind the wheel. The film stars Corey Haim, last seen in The Wonderful Lucas, as a kid whose twin sister passes the test with a perfect score while he agonizes over multiple choice questions. Okay, what would you do if you encountered a large pool of water? Step on the brakes, generally accelerate, hydroplane. Meanwhile, the most beautiful girl in school named Mercedes, who is Heather Graham, asks him out for Saturday night. What to do since he doesn't have a license? He borrows his grandfather's caddy and an immaculate 72 boat the length of a tennis court and crosses his fingers. The movie's funniest moments are provided by James Avery as a gruff driving instructor who balances a cup of coffee on the dashboard and tells Haim he had better not spill it and Helen Hampt as the woman in charge of the license examinations. The scene where Haim takes his driving examination neatly recaptures the sheer terror of the experience through dozens of little details, minutely observed. There are also some nice moments with Haim's parents, R Richard Mazur and Carol Kane, who try to juggle his passions about driving with the fact that mom is very pregnant. Up until the halfway mark of this movie, I was having a very good time. Then, somehow, it ran out of energy. The extended chase sequences in which the precious old Cadillac is systematically destroyed were versions of scenes I've seen countless times before. The stunts, including a car that races backwards and hurls through the air, are no more funny or interesting in License to Drive than in any other would-be comedies about the mistreatment of automobiles. Somehow, Hollywood must have it fixed in its mind that a comedy must end with a chase scene. Since chases are so rarely really funny, however, all they do is replace the freshness of invention with the predictability of arranged stunts. And that's his review. I absolutely adored License to Drive as a kid, and so at the time, I was almost 10 years old, and a crazy teen comedy about a night of zaniness and learning how to drive was right up my alley, and I loved the chemistry between the Corys, and, and while Roger Ebert was bored by the car chase scenes in the second half of the film, it was perfect for someone my age who hadn't been jaded or burnt out by the movie plot tropes that Ebert had seen countless times. And as an adult, I can totally understand why Ebert enjoyed the first half of the film and then rolled his eyes at the second part. That being said, I still get the same enjoyment out of License to Drive today as I did when I first saw it over 30 years ago. And I'm sure my mom remembered renting this on VHS often for my sister and I as kids. All right, let's get into the main cast. We have Corey Haim, who plays Les Anderson. And while Haim and Feldman will forever be tied together in 80s and 90s film history, this is the film that likely solidified that 
the movie bond would continue for the rest of their film careers. So their first movie was the really excellent teen vampire movie, The Lost Boys. That was the first one they started. However, Haim already on his own had created quite the resume as a child actor. He appeared in Silver Bullet, which was a Stephen King movie. Murphy's Romance was a great underrated movie with James Garner and Sally Field. And really, as Ebert mentioned, the excellent Lucas. Sadly, he battled drug addiction for most of his adult life, and then he died in 2018 at the age of 38 due to complications from pneumonia. Corey Feldman plays Dean, and Feldman had about six years on Haim when it came to acting uh, because he was making appearances on TV shows. But his first film was actually as the young voice of Young Copper, who was the dog, and The Fox and the Hound, which was the animated Disney film. But Feldman's first big movie came in 1984 with Gremlins, and then he followed it up with 1985's Friday the 13th, A New Beginning, and then, of course, he went on to Goonies and Stand By Me, and then The Lost Boys. Carol Kane plays Mrs. Anderson, and Kane was already recognizable for her unique voice, and she is terrific as Corey Haim's mom, whose character is ready to give birth at any moment during the film. Kane's film career started in the early 1970s, and she appeared in films like Carnal Knowledge with Art Garfunkel and Jack Nicholson. She was in Dog Day Afternoon, Annie Hall, The Muppet Movie, Jumpin' Jack Flash, Ishtar, you can forget that one, and The Princess Bride. Though she is probably best known as Simka, which was Latka's wife, of course, Andy Kaufman, in the hit TV series Taxi. Richard Mazur plays Mr. Anderson, and, and Mazur has some of the funniest and most memorable scenes in License to Drive, and he really plays this character perfectly. We'll get more into that later. But as for his career up to this film, Mazur, like Kane, began acting in the 1970s. He had a reoccurring role in the TV series Rhoda as Nick Lobo, and also on the show One Day at a Time as David Kane. But his film break came in the 1982 remake of The Thing from John Carpenter. Then the next year, he had a memorable role as the college recruiter in Risky Business with Tom Cruise. Heather Graham plays Mercedes Lane, and this film is notable for Graham because it was her first movie that she had ever been in. She had never acted before. She was uh, only 17 at the time. Her dad would be on set, and he was actually an FBI agent, so he didn't want to mess with Heather Graham. Graham, of anyone in this film, would arguably become the biggest star and definitely the longest career of any of the actors in the film, notwithstanding uh, Richard Mazur and Carol Kane. The director was Greg Beeman, and this was Beeman's directorial debut for a full-length film. He would pretty much stick with being a TV show director for the rest of his career. He directed episodes for shows like The Wonder Years, Nash Bridges, Jag, Heroes, and Smallville. The screenwriter was Neil Tolkien, and like Beeman, this would be his film debut, and he really wouldn't write many more films, though he did write 1995's Jury Duty with Pauly Shore. I saw that in the theater. He is currently a part of the writing staff for the revamped Magnum P.I., all right, let's get into some uh, quick notes about the making of the films. So the idea for the script came from a failed article that Neil Tolkien pitched to National Lampoon magazine about a kid who lies to his girlfriend about getting his license. Corey Haim was actually the reason this film was even greenlit. They already had Corey Feldman on board prior to getting Haim. And a cool thing about this movie is that there were actually teenagers playing teenagers. Haim, Feldman, and Graham were really teenagers instead of, you know, like having, you know, 20-year-olds playing uh, teens. All right, let's just get right into the film. So the movie credits are in typical 80s fashion. There's funny graphics about driving while a cover of the Beatles classic Drive My Car plays. But unfortunately, it's an 80s version by the band The Breakfast Club. Even the director, Greg Beeman, wasn't thrilled about this version of the song. But 20th Century Fox thought the band were going to be great, and then nobody heard from them again. 
The movie opens with a crazy dream sequence, uh, though the viewer is unaware of this at first. Celeste, who is Corey Haim, is trapped on a school bus driven by his driver's ed teacher. All the students are chained to their seats. Celeste notices the girl of his dreams, Mercedes Lane. <laughs> well, of course, that's Heather Graham. She's sitting in a Ferrari at a stop sign. So Les breaks from his chains, and I should be playing Dokken right now. Some people will get that joke. Uh, and then he leaps from the, the back window and, and crashes through it and runs towards Mercedes, and then he hops into the red Ferrari, sort of uh, Magnum P.I. Uh, style. This causes a ridiculous car chase scene where the school bus is trying to run down the Ferrari. Suddenly, during the chase, a voiceover from a stereotypical driver's ed film starts to play, and the viewer starts to realize that this might be a fantasy sequence. So we then see Les asleep in class while an old-school reel-to-reel film plays, and I'm old enough to remember these. Uh, the end of the dream sequence plays out where the bus drives through a gas fire caused by Les and Mercedes. Les's sister Natalie, played by Nina Simasco, is also in the class. Her friend is her friend asks if Les has mono or something since he slept through the entire class. And no, Natalie says he's just brain dead. So you might remember Shamasco as the ditzy blonde who likes Adam Sandler in the movie Airheads and from genius to airhead. Great actress. Ironically, Haim did actually have mono during the filming of the movie and Heather Graham didn't want to kiss him because of their date scene because of it. The teacher is not amused by Les's sleeping through class. He says something like, it's punks like you that end up getting scraped off the road at four in the morning. And then he makes Les write, I will drive safely many times on the chalkboard. Do kids still have to go through this ridiculous punishment? Because if anything, it would help with their penmanship because today's child isn't even taught penmanship any longer due to the advent of technology. I don't know. So Les misses the bus because of having to stay late after class. So his buddy Dean, Corey Feldman, gives him a ride on the front of his bike, which is a fun montage of madness riding through the neighborhood like an insane person. So once they arrive to Les's house, they notice the 1974 baby blue Cadillac parked in the driveway. License plate says Grandpa, and this is Les's grandfather's car, which will eventually become a plot point later in the film. We also get to meet Wes's dad, played by the always awesome Richard Mazur. And Mazur often steals the show in every scene he's in in License to Drive, along with Wes's mom, played by Carol Kane. So Mazur and Kane improved a lot of their scenes together, which always worked. To round out the Anderson family is the youngest son, Rudy, played by Christopher Burton. So Kane is pregnant with another child, which plays out later in the film. The family dinner is really amusing as Kane eats a huge plate of mashed potatoes with ketchup doused on top of it. The family looks on in horror before she says, This is what I ate when I was pregnant with all of you, and you turned out okay. So there's a funny scene where Dean and his mom come to pick up Les to go to the party. And so Dean decides to lay on the car horn for at least a minute to get Les to come out for dinner. All right, Matt here. Hey, buddy. Down. Later, after getting dropped off by Dean's mom about a block away from the party, a group of older kids see the guys getting dropped off and yell, Hey, dweebs, does your mommy hold your dick when you piss? And then they peel away with a, you know, typical, woo 
I always used to crack up as a kid for this scene. I still laugh today, to be honest. I love the 80s. Hey, Dwayne! Does mommy hold your kids for your kids? <laughs> so Les and Dean's even dorkier friend Charles gets dropped off by his mom in front of the party, and Les and Dean try to avoid him, but to no avail. So in a typical 80s plot point, Les, of course, is in love with Mercedes, but she has no idea he even exists. Until, that is, during the party, her older boyfriend decides he doesn't want to be at a party with, quote, children, which pisses Mercedes off. She says to forget about their next date because she already has plans with another guy. And, of course, he asks, well, what other guy? And Les just happens to be sitting right next to the argument when Mercedes points to Les. There's nothing new here, but it works, right? This, of course, leads Les to wonder if he's really going to go out with Mercedes or not. The next day, he decides to confirm if they're going out on a date. As he's about to ask her at the school bus stop, Les's dad hilariously drives up unexpectedly to give him a ride from school. So Les tries to ignore him, and he follows, and it's hilarious as he tries to get his attention, which always made my sister and I laugh. Like, Les, Les, it's me, Papa! Les, I have the answer. Why don't you just ask her to make sure? Look, I'd love to trust, but I can't talk to something I can't see, right? I mean, come on, guys. Last night was the closest any of us have ever been to her. Well, you're in luck, lover boy, because she's sitting down right over there. Wait, wait, Dean, I can't do it, man. Go on, ask her. If you're lucky, she'll bite. <laughs> So then, acting like a cool dad, Mr. Anderson decides to let Les drive. Uh, Dad, here comes the stop sign. Nice call. That's a good one. Why don't we make a right turn right here? Hmm? What? Dad, I have to ask you for a favor, and you can say no. But I will never, ever ask you for another favor as long as I live. Les, you know that's a lie. See that girl over there walking? is the girl of my dreams. Okay, okay. Let's give her a cruise. Dad, Dad shh. Look. She just asked me out last night, Dad. Yeah? Okay? Now, if I don't buy her with you in the car with me, no offense. It just, just won't work. You understand? Les, you're asking me to let you drive this car alone without a license? Are you crazy? Dad, I'm just going to go up to her and circle around, maybe at the least say hello to her and come right back to you in two minutes. Be careful, Dad. Sure. Thanks. Be careful. I will, I promise I will. I trust you. Thanks, Dad. Oh, and a Dad, Dad. Yeah. Would, would you mind? Okay, so which house is yours? Third one on the left. Okay. But I'm not going home. 
Where are you going? To a friend's house in Cedarwood. You don't mind, do you? Not at all. Thanks a lot for the ride, Les. No, um, problem. Another hilarious line. Let's take her for a cruise. <laughs> but Mazer's face after Les goes to pick him up after driving Mercedes around is priceless. He looks like a rabid animal. How could you do it, Les? What were you thinking about? I don't believe it. I mean, not only did you break your explicit promise to me, but you used up your last favor. I suppose you know where this leads you, don't you? Not in good shape. That's right. Look, Dad, just let me explain it to you, okay? Look, Dad, she told me that she lived three houses down. I thought I was taking her home. Why don't you just tell her the truth? Tell Mercedes Lane the truth that that, that Les Anderson doesn't have a license? Yes. And, and risk her having a heart attack from laughing so hard at me? Her? Her having a heart attack? Look, Dad, please, please just put yourself in my shoes. Look, you're upsetting your mother. She's pregnant, you know. So the problem with Les agreeing to the date is that, of course, he still doesn't have his license. So everything hinges on Les passing his driver's test. Of course, he fails his written exam, which, crazy enough, is all done on computer, even in 1987. However, after failing, he gets pissed off and smacks his computer screen, which causes a huge power outage. Since his twin sister aced the exam, the DMV representative figures that he must have passed as well. So Les is allowed to take the behind-the-wheel test. So Les's road test examiner is none other than Uncle Phil from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and that is James Avery. And Avery is like a drill sergeant, whereas Natalie gets the laid-back Grant Goodeve, who is best known as David Bradford in the TV series Eight is Enough. So Les barely passes his test, which basically meant he couldn't spill coffee on Avery. That was his only requirement. <laughs> Avery is hilarious in the scene when explaining his rules as he flips his clipboard out the window before they take off. Buckle up, son. It's the real world out here. Hi, Anderson. I want you to take a long, hard look at this cup of coffee. Most examiners use a clipboard. <laughs> I don't believe in them. What I do believe in is my cup of coffee. Now that coffee is hot, filled right to the brim. If it spilled on me, probably burn me, huh? Speak up, son. Yeah, yeah. Well, nobody likes to get burned, do they? No. So it's real simple. You burn me, you fail. However, Les's moment of joy is brief as the written test results are recovered. Congratulations, here's your license. And please, drive safely. Uh, Mr. Anderson, just a minute. Someone wants to speak with you.
Ethan. We were able to retrieve your test results from the computer. And I suppose you already know, you failed. God giveth, and the DMV taketh away. You mustn't fuck with the Department of Motor Vehicles, Mr. Anderson. We can make your life a living hell. So what's interesting about this scene is only one fuck was allowed. Uh, more than one would have given it an R rating, and so they used it for the DMV scene. And it works. So Les can't bring himself to tell the truth about failing his written test, so he lies to everyone that he passed. But like a typical idiot teenager, his mom finds his failed test in his pants pocket while doing his laundry. This is why you do your own laundry, folks. He ends up being grounded for two weeks for lying. This, of course, kills the chance of his date with Mercedes. However, Mercedes, who is at home killing time, happens to see the magazine where Les wrote his phone number on and gives him a call at 11.15 at night. Les, understandably shocked, agrees to keep their date and to pick her up in 30 minutes. Les decides to borrow his grandfather's giant Cadillac to go on his date with Mercedes, and then the movie kicks into gear, pun totally intended. So the start of the date seems to be going well and trouble from Nina Peoples is playing while Les drives them to a club. Of course, he can't get into the club, but she can. Inside the club, a horrible cover version of the Cream classic I Feel Free is playing by Belinda Carlisle. Mercedes sees her ex-boyfriend with another woman who informs Mercedes that the other woman is moving in with him. Mercedes then slaps him and then storms out with a bottle of champagne, which she conveniently steals and then drinks all of it eventually. On top of that, Les almost has his card towed, which is another funny scene. The tow truck guy is hilarious, who is R.A. Mahal... I can't even pronounce his name, but besides this film, he was he was in another notable role as Leatherface in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3 from 1990. So his name... I, I can... I'll, I'll try to slowly pronounce his name. R.A. That's easy. That's that's his first name. It's uh, Off. Anyway, go look it up. Do you have IMDb for a reason? Oh my god. My car! No! Jesus! Wait, wait! Wait, hold up! Get off my truck, boy! Look, mister, you can't do this to my car! Boy, I've driven with deer, antelope, even bears trapped to that bumper. Ain't no 65-pound sack of fly shit like you gonna shake me a hella different! Look, I'll pay you! I'll give you everything I got! Just how much you talking about? Please, sir. Be gentle. <laughs> For 80 bucks? <laughs> 80 bucks? <laughs> this is where Wes's dream date starts to become a nightmare, though it's hilarious to watch. Mercedes gets so crazy drunk that she basically passes out for the rest of the movie. Les's mixtape, you remember those, that he created for his big date gets eaten by the tape deck, so he's stuck with Grandpa's tape collection, which includes Engelbert Humperdinck, Perry Como, Glenn Miller, Mel Torme, Tom Jones, and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> this actually leads to a fun soundtrack because Frank Sinatra is the only tape that ends up working for the rest of the night. Mercedes, before passing out, ends up denting the roof of the car, 
when they end up parking at the makeout point, they decide to dance on top of the roof. Well, she decided. Mercedes then ends up passing out, so Les drives to Dean's house to get the car fixed, which meant that Dean and Charles get to tag along for Les's failed date. You asshole, do it for shirt! No way, Les, forget about it. I mean, look at us, with three wild animals bombing down the highway with the cruise control set at 55 miles per hour. I don't need a ticket on my first night out. God damn it, stop that! And, and what is this crap we're listening to? I mean, my parents don't even listen to this stuff. Sorry, no. give me that camera! No, give me it! No! God damn, Dean, it's not your camera! Give me the camera, no. give me it! No. Guys, give me it! No! Give me it! No! Jesus! Watch out! Feldman really did work well together on film, and it's a shame that Haim couldn't get past his addictions and keep his successful career going. An ongoing plot point while Les is out on his date is that Mrs. Anderson wakes up constantly through the night thinking she go she's going into labor. And as it turns out, she's just hungry for terrible food combinations like sardines and pickle sandwiches. So going back to the boys, after almost totaling their car, they end up at a place called Shaky's Pizza. However, Dean wants the night to keep going, and like idiots, they decide to go to the top spot, which is a drive-in called Archie's. And because a passed-out Mercedes would cramp their style to pick up girls, he suggests they put her in the trunk, which they do. So once they get to Archie's, you get some interesting music. You get Crucial by New Edition, and then Waiting for the Big One from Femme Fatale which Femme Fatale is a really underrated band, and Lorraine Lewis still has a fabulous voice.
course, Charles, like an idiot, opens up the car door and smashes into another car. The same guys who yelled at Dean and Les about mommy holding their dicks when they piss. This leads to a crazy escape scene. There's another side story in which Les's sister Natalie is dragged to a protest by her annoying commie boyfriend. Ironically, it's the good sister that ends up getting arrested and end in trouble while Les is having a crazy night, almost punishment free. Next, then they get stopped at a checkpoint looking for drunk drivers. Of course, Les has to admit he doesn't have a license and explain why his date is in his trunk. The guys luck out as the cops let them go because they're called to a robbery in process. And in the mix-up, a drunk guy pulled over by the checkpoint steals their car. Oh, Maserati. Oh, this is much nicer than mine. Keys? Back on top in June. Looks like I'm in for the night. I said that's life, but I let it, let it get me down. this my bear, a parker, a pirate, a poet, a panic king. I've been up and down and over and out.
Bella Roses, that's for sure. People, problem. People pushing me around. The drunk ends up totaling the car to the horror of Les. The drunk guy is hilarious while he continues to drink while drive, along with singing to Frank Sinatra. After rescuing the car from the drunk guy, Les takes back the total Cadillac home. His dad wants to kill him, but then, of course, his mom goes into labor. And the only car available is the demolished Cadillac, which now only drives in reverse. So the reason that only the Cadillac's available is the other car was towed after Natalie was arrested. So Les is tasked with rushing his mom to the hospital in reverse only. Richard Mazur is priceless in this scene, like, where did you people learn how to drive? Wes even makes his former test examiner spill his coffee while driving past him. You crazy? There isn't a car in sight. We're rushing your mother to the hospital, not to a bridge game. Come on, go through it. Go through it. What are you doing? Come on. Set up pushing the gas down. It ain't moving. I don't know. Sounds like the transmission. Try another gear. Come on. Mom? Try low. Don't worry. I'm just having a baby. What was that? Reverse works, Dad. Honey? Let him drive backwards. Let him drive sideways. I don't care. Just get me there. All right. But be careful. Baby? No, doctor. Look, it's a screwball comedy, so everything works out in the end, and you get the perfect 80s ending with Billy Ocean's hit song, Get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car, which plays. Hello? Hello? Is anybody home? 
It's Grandpa. What are you going to tell him today? Well, the truth could kill him, but I guess you're getting kind of old, huh? What's everybody sweating about? He's been away a long time. I want to come in, relax. Come on, that open up. He hasn't seen the twins yet. I know my father. Last thing in the world he's going to be worried about is his car. Hi, Dad. Where's my caddy? Last did it! Last, I didn't... What the hell is that? Uh, hey, um, son of a bitch, what in the hell is that? It's your cart. trouble with your car, too. My BMW? Son of a bitch! Yo! <laughs> uh, Les? You know how you said when you got your license you wanted a BMW? Well, here you go. It's all yours. Take good care of it. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. It's uh, very generous of you, but, you know, I don't need the BMW anymore. I already have a Mercedes. Don't wait up, guys! <laughs> if this movie was made today, I don't think it would be as funny. They probably couldn't get away with all the drinking scenes. Uh, and then, actually... At the time, MAD, which was Mothers Against Drunk Driving, thought the movie was glamorizing drunk driving. And I didn't think so at all. The guy was an idiot and crashed the car. I, I knew not to drive drunk. So the original ending was supposed to stop right when they got to the hospital, which, of course, was the crane crashing on, on top of the car. But it tested horribly, so they shot the scene at the end, which was the real ending with Grandpa seeing his car. So there was a long-deleted scene that I will explain, and it's actually on the bonus footage of the original DVD. So at the drunk checkpoint, that's easy to say, it's like taking a drunk test, before the cops see that Mercedes is asleep in the trunk, they get called away on another call, so you know that. Then Les, Dean, and Charles go to a used car lot and decides to swap their damaged car with an exact same car by requesting a test drive. Unfortunately, the car they want is driven off the lot by the owner, so the boys follow him and they end up in the terrible neighborhood and he actually stops at a bar. The owner has a ton of cash under the passenger seat of the car they want to take. So the plan is to steal the car and leave Les's grandpa's car in its place since it looks exactly the same. Then the punks who wanted to beat up the guys at Archie's pull up and start to smash the used car salesman's car, thinking that it was Les's car. Les, who happens to be hiding underneath the car at the time, tries to bluff the guys into thinking that they didn't know how to smash a car. So then Les enters the packed bar and orders whiskey. Les tries to drink the shot, but then spits it out and says he wants a real drink. Then the bartender pulls out an unmarked bottle. Les grabs the bottle, which has a worm in it, and takes the worm out of the bottle and eats it. 
Then the punks try to fight with Wes, and a huge bar fight ensues. So Wes then steals the the car from the the dealer, and Charles and Dean park their car, the real car, in front of the bar. Dean then discovers the ton of cash in the seat. Then they realize that Mercedes is still in the trunk of the car they left at the bar. So they speed back to the bar, they get Mercedes out of the trunk, and they put the money they found in the car that they will leave behind at the bar. The used car owner sees what they're doing, pulls out a gun, and shoots at them. Natalie, in the meantime, is sitting in jail after being arrested during the protest. Les then drives his friend home, not Natalie. So essentially, this was a scene that was supposed to be instead of the drunk driver scene. The drunk scene, which eventually made it to the film, is actually much better. They made the right decision. The original scene was a bit too dark in tone compared to the rest of the film. So let's get into the fun facts about the film. Corey Feldman originally auditioned for Les, but Corey Haim was offered the role directly and he signed on to the film. Ben Affleck actually also tried out for the role of Les. John Hughes was considered to direct the film, but he would have cast Anthony Michael Hall as Les and then Molly Ringwald as Mercedes Lane. Corey Haynes said that Carol Kane and Richard Mazur were super fun and loved working with them. The scene where Corey Haim is jumping up and down while he's picking up uh, Heather Graham was all improv when he drove away from his father. Corey Haim really didn't have a license during the making of the film, so it was all realistic because he was going to get a permit at the time. So he was actually learning to drive in real time. Same with Corey Feldman. One of Haim's trademarks, which he later regretted, was that he would always open his mouth for every reaction shot. Now you'll never see it the same. So Corey Feldman and Corey Haim met on the set of The Lost Boys, and they were both up for the same part for Goonies and Lucas. So the Corey's fad just went crazy after The Lost Boys. They were super popular, and they thought they weren't actually going to work together after The Lost Boys. And then License to Drive happened, and Feldman wasn't happy initially losing the role to Haim, but he still agreed to appear in the film. So during the filming of License to Drive, Feldman is actually out partying with Sam Kinison. Feldman actually took Heather Graham out once uh, on a date to an award show, but nothing serious happened between them. Corey Feldman said he chose all of his own wardrobe. There were nine Cadillacs that were purchased for use in this movie. That's probably where the budget went to. And then in some VH versions of the movie, the song New Sensation by NXS uh, replaced the song Trouble by Nia Peoples from the theatrical version. All right, so this film is super fun. Does it hold up? It depends where you're at. If you like 80s movies, I I kind of agree with, with Ebert. The first half is awesome. I get why he doesn't like the second half, but I still do. It's only 90 minutes, and I, I think it's a fun comedy. It's not overly insane in the sense of, uh, the dialogue isn't like super vulgar. See, today they would have made it, and I, I hate to say this because I don't want to come off as, as prude. I'm like, I don't care if people swear or not, but it becomes like lazy when it's nonstop swearing. The reason why these movies work so well is you could still be vulgar in your own way without just having to say fuck 500 times. It's just, it's lazy and it gets old. And so when you do it a couple times to accentuate that point, it works really well. And I think that's why License to Drive and a lot of the other teen comedies back in the day work better. Anyway, just my opinion. So we get the always awesome Keith Rochford, who also loved this movie and uh, enjoyed talking about it. He's going to discuss his thoughts on it. And I will be back next week to talk about another movie from my DVD collection because you never know what you're going to get. All right, we're back. It's been way too long since we've had this next guest on. It's Keith Rochford. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. I've been spending a lot of time apparently at the DMV waiting in line. So I'm glad (laughs) to be back. Awesome. Yes. I see. That was that was well done. So, speaking of that, did you see this movie when you were about to drive? Were you already driving? And uh, how big of a fan of the Corys were you back in the day? 
uh, I was 16-ish when it came out. Mm-hmm. I don't think I had my license at the time. I probably got it after the movie was out because I wouldn't have turned 16 until late in 88. So probably in 89 is when I got my license, if I remember. So I probably saw it before I got it. Uh, fan of the Corys. They were kind of just goofy to me. I didn't really get all into it. At that time, I was all about either horror movies and, you know, what's the most grossest horror movie that you could see. Mm-hmm. So the, those are just kind of like the, uh, yeah, I guess I'll watch it. There's nothing else to, to watch or rent or what whatever they were doing with that at that time. So you probably liked The Lost Boys, at least. I did like The Lost Boys, yeah. I loved mm-hmm. The Lost Boys. And, again, horror movies were just the thing for me that are like action movies. Um, but, yeah, the, the teen comedies, if they weren't like the Porkies or something like that, basically, if they didn't have nudity, I didn't really care. <laughs> yes, <16. different, laughs> different era, pre-internet, we needed something like Porkies or a random, you know, like uh, TNA shot. You know, that that was uh, definitely of the time, which yeah. this movie really doesn't have. I mean, it really is geared towards teenagers. Yeah, and, and after watching it again, it's definitely one of those rite of passage teen movies. You know, you have like the, I know it's later in, in the genre, but you have like the American Pie guys trying to, you know, mm-hmm. get laid, and this, these kids are just trying to get their their driver's license to go to the next step before they get can get to the party. So yeah, that's kind of what it was. That's right, that's right. And so it's funny seeing well, one you get to see Heather Graham and her film debut. Of course, she'll go on to bigger. Actually, she became probably the most famous of anyone in this film. Uh, yeah, I would I would have to agree with you on that. I mean, you know, it was it was a shock looking back and going, yeah, I guess that is her first film. The hair was horrible, but she's yeah. still hot. <laughs> Very much so. But what's funny is, and and I'm sure you realize this connection. So you and I talked about Airheads, and Nina Samasco is Natalie, who is Corey Haim's sister in the film. And, of course, she was uh, the the girlfriend, the secretary for Adam Sandler. Like, they kind of hooked up in in Airheads. I even had a note about that, that we have now come full circle with the first one that we talked about. So, yeah. Who knew? Well, actually, it just shows (laughs) what a good actress she is because she is the complete opposite in this role. Yeah, I mean, she kind of played the uh, the sex pot secretary or whatever in in Airheads. In this one, she's kind of like the, was it the, uh, I'm trying to, the sister with all the... The no nukes. Yeah, the no nukes and trying to, you know, whatever happened that her boyfriend wanted to do follow and go against and fight the oppression. That's what she was all about. Right. Which is so funny. That's kind of a fun plot trope because uh, Les is the one going crazy and get arrested, but (laughs) she does. Right. She gets arrested for a sit in and he's going through the entire city with different kinds of cars with no license and doesn't get arrested. So, yeah. And actually, he should have been arrested, but the cops had to go uh, do something else at, at one point. Right, and then they had to swap cars. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. So I don't know about you. Like, one of the reviews that I had read said they loved the movie in the beginning, and then it kind of trails off to a typical, like, you know, 80s trope towards the end. How how do you feel about it? And did you like this movie when you first saw it? I did like it when I first saw it. I mean, I, I really have never cared what critics have ever said, even though I would sit there and watch Siskel and Ebert. Mm-hmm. I kind of watched it and went, mm, I'm going to like the ones that they don't like. Right. So I, I liked the beginning. It was pretty funny, you know, just kind of the way they did the whole DMV and the school thing and that. And you kind of knew where it was going to go somewhere. I kind of looked at it kind of like an adventures and babysitting style movie. Exactly. Like what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. But that's always fun to do. I mean, you can only do so much with the, you know, the DMV plot line. And then all of a sudden he doesn't have a license. What now happens? You know, so, yeah, it was fun. 
Speaking of the DMV, that's, again, some of the best scenes are there. One, you get the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, the uncle. Uh, James Avery plays uh, the the uh, driving instructor, and so you just can't spill the coffee on him. <laughs> that's that's all he had to do. And I still think of that to this day. I'll look over on, on my right-hand side as I'm driving, like, can't spill the coffee type thought process on it. And it's so different of a character than what he was in Fresh Prince. Exactly. Yeah, you see a total hard ass in this movie and, and not like that. But Uncle Phil, right? Yeah, Uncle Phil, you know, yeah. super laid back, you know, n- no, uh, we can, no, well, we can uh, work with this and I'm all laid back and I can walk you through it. And then this, he's just a hard ass in this movie. <laughs> so of the Corys, which ones, which one did you like a little bit better? Um, I always liked Corey Haim better because he seemed a little bit more relatable. Feldman was just even back then the characters that he played, however he did it, was always just a, a tad too weird for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally just, over to over the top. Yeah, definitely over the top, and that has not changed in his the later years in his life. Oh, I know. Uh, who would have get like? I guess they were both doing a lot of drugs at that point. But yeah, he's the one that came out. I don't know for the better. Well, obviously for the better he lived, but um, you know, he's just he he's he's out there. One of the great side, I love the parents. And so my, my favorite character in this film is the dad played by Richard Mazur. He just cracks me up throughout the entire film. Oh, I, I agree with you. The parents are, are the part of the funniest scenes, especially towards the end. First, when he's, all right, let me go check the air conditioning and doesn't even realize the car is gone. Right. <laughs> and then the whole labor and false labor and how he's going back and forth and just his reactions to his son. You can kind of see like you can, un- he understands what the kid's going through when he asks him to get out of the car, but then having to carry all the diapers back. Oh, yeah. Like when he picks him up and he's like, it's me, Papa. Like, it's just like it's every kid's like nightmare. <laughs> that and you know, take. he's doing yeah. it just to burn them, too. Oh, of course. Of course. But he's great. He's great. And of course, Carol Kay or Carol Kane. Um, she's great, uh, you know, as, as the pregnant mom. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think what was the uh, she did. What was she doing? After that, there was another one that she kind of played the, the weird character like that, too. She was in uh, Scrooged. I know she uh, she was one of the um, God. She was the ghost of whatever. Let's see. Maybe that might have been before then. Let's see. And, oh, she was the ghost of the Christmas present in Scrooge the same okay. year. She was in The Princess Bride as Valerie. Yes, I remember that. And then I think later on, wasn't she in was she the I guess the nanny in the pacifier for Vin Diesel that quits? Oh, you know what? You're probably right. Yep. I think so. Yeah. yeah. It's like one of those characters that she just plays totally off center in, in the way she you know carries herself, which is perfect. Right. And she had been acting since the early 70s. I mean, she's in some great films like Dog Day Afternoon and Annie Hall and some really good stuff. And what a voice. I mean, you don't you know her immediately. She's kind of like the uh, the good witch in The Wizard of Oz. You just know her voice. Oh, yeah. As soon as you start talking, you know exactly who it is. So you, did you do this in the theater or was this a rental? No, it was definitely a rental. Okay. Okay. So how often do you go back to this movie and uh, would you recommend it today? Um, I don't own it, so I would never go back to it. But mm-hmm. I would, if it's on, I usually will leave it on just because it's fun. You know, it's one of those background movies that you can kind of jump in and figure out what's going on at any time. But it's fun to watch. It's, I mean, there's there's a couple swear words here and there and some adult things, but something I can leave on with the kids and they're not going to pay any attention to it. And interesting, so we, we always talk about the music. How did you feel about the songs in the film? Oh, the first intro, that horrible, cheesy 80s yes. cover of Drive My Car was like, <laughs> yes. 
nails on a chalkboard. It was horrendous. Uh, the only other note I really had for some of the music was uh, I recognized the, I think it's a Jersey band called Slave Raider when they were. Oh, really? Using, they were in the Cadillac. All the guys were in the Cadillac. And then like the, the tough guys pull up next to them. They're challenging them to race. Uh-huh. And they're they're playing a rock slash metal song. It's a band called Slave Raider doing Make Some Noise. They were, their whole gimmick, or maybe they're from Minneapolis. I don't remember. But their whole gimmick was like they dressed as pirates. Yeah. <laughs> and I great. vaguely remember it was one of those videos that was shown on Headbangers Ball. If it ended at two in the morning and that one was shown at one fifty five to kind of trail out. It never got any major rotation. That's mm-hmm. the only song I ever remembered from them. But that's about the only song I remembered from the movie. Yeah, and there well there's and uh, do you remember the band Femme Fatale, Lorraine Lewis? Yeah, was I didn't, was that in there? There's two songs in there, yeah, from their debut. So Touch and Go and uh, Waiting for the Big One. So oh, I, I must have missed it. But yeah, I, I did like the song Waiting for the Big One. Yeah, it's I think during the Archie's thing. So it's like when it, that, that drive in. So they, it's like one of those quick, you know, playing in the middle of the action type of thing. Okay. And then, of course, the end with Billy Ocean and Get Out of My Dreams, Get Into My Car. Yeah, that was one of those token. You knew that that was going to happen. Like you can can feel it, especially while looking back at it. And then the whole, you know, not to give away the ending or anything. I'm sure right. At this point, you know, it's it's, you know, 30 years later, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. But yeah. I mean, it was like they tailor made the, the character name for his ending line when he says it to his dad, when he jumps into the car with Heather Graham. With the Mercedes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it was funny. I just I was looking at the soundtrack listing right now, and there is a Fresh Prince connection, as there is a DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince song in there. So there you go. Oh, I did not know that. Jazzy's in the house. I missed that one too. <laughs> so any any other thoughts, favorite scenes? Uh, you know what 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 did uh, this movie leave you with after you watched it again? You know my the funniest thing I found was just the way the the DMV lady. When she takes the the license back from him, the whole God giveth and the DMV taketh away. Yeah. You know, and you mustn't fuck with the the DMV. You know, right. That, that, we all feel that every time we go there. It's like, what did I do? You know, I, I just want to renew my license. And I think the one fuck they used that that made it at least still PG thirteen. If you do it, if they did another uh, curse word, they would have lost the PG thirteen. So they had to make it worthwhile, and they did. Yeah, they they definitely made took the most of it, and they definitely used it the best way. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, even the ending the, 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 with the, the grandfather and the dad and it, even though it's a goofy movie, you can see like you know, it make, it's a feel good ending for everything. It was just a fun movie. So, yeah, I mean, totally. I, it, it was back in the day you'd rent movies like this with your buddies because it was just easy and mindless. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like the was it the, like the group of Patrick Dempsey movies that he did when he was a teenager. Yeah, exactly. It, exactly. It was it Lover Boy and Can't Buy Me Love? I kind of look at those all in the kind of same same grouping that they're just fun movies that you know you can throw on at any time totally and and to a lesser extent lucas with uh, Corey Haim, even though it's a little bit more serious but for the most part it's a feel-good movie yeah yeah i would, I would yeah. agree with that yeah well thank you again this has been awesome anytime thanks for having me all right hey this is brian davis and you might know me from the damn good movie memories podcast And now, get ready for the Bad Beat Show on ThatMetalStation.com from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern every Wednesday night. I'm going to play some kick-ass hard rock inspired by the blues, because after all, the foundation of all things rock and metal is, of course, the blues. So join me every Wednesday night for the Bad Beat, because even when you lose, you still win. 
we are officially on Spotify now. So if you don't use iTunes, if you don't use the Podbean app, you can go to Spotify and get all of our past episodes. You can stream it on there. So if you're a Spotify user, you can go find Damn Good Movie Memories. <laughs> I can't even say my own podcast. Damn Good Movie Memories. Yes, I know what I'm talking about. I'm the host, right? Okay, so go to Spotify, look for Damn Good Movie Memories. You can stream all of that stuff. And yeah, so if you don't want to use iTunes, you don't want to use Podbean, you can use Spotify as well. All right, before we sign off, we do have t-shirts are available for sale. All you have to do is go to TeePublic, that's T-E-E-P-U-B-L-I-C.com, and you can get your very own Damn Good Movie Memories t-shirt. You can get all sizes, any gender, you can get whatever you want just at the tip of your fingers. So just go to TeePublic.com, look up Damn Good Movie Memories, and you can get your very own t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast and are an iTunes user, please do the show a favor and head on over to the official iTunes page for Damn Good Movie Memories. Be sure to leave a rating and a review. This will allow the show to appear higher in the algorithm and spread the joy of this podcast to the masses. If you are not an iTunes user, you can still listen and subscribe on Podbean at damngoodmoviememories.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook under our Damn Good Movie Memories page. You can also listen to a limited number of episodes on YouTube. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and be sure to tune in next week for an all new episode of Damn Good Movie Memories. I am Dr. Fuck. And I'm the actual alcoholic. And we are part of the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. We are the Rock and Metal Combat Podcast. That's right. And the way you can check us out is we are on iTunes and also Podbeam. And we forgot a review recently. I got this review right here. It says right here, it says, Rock and Metal Combat Podcast is the greatest podcast in the world. And it's my number one podcast signed by Science. Now, and then Science also says... Science! Science also said... My second favorite podcast is It Doesn't Matter, The Rest Suck. Rock and Metal Combat Podcast on iTunes and Poppy. Check it out. Science! Are you ready for the hottest new podcast out there? Check out the Vieira Vault featuring none other than Dr. Fuck Ralph Vieira. You will hear personal stories and personal songs from the vault. There ain't nothing else like it. The one, the only, the original Vieira Vault on Podbean, Stitcher.com, and iTunes. Spreaker. God damn it. <laughs> <laughs>this is Stephen Michael from the Growing Up Rock Podcast. If you're like me and my co-host Sonny Hollywood Pooney, you grew up loving hard rock and metal music. Check out our podcast where we talk to bands and artists that help create the soundtrack to our lives, along with playing some killer new and old deep tracks of kick-ass guitar-driven rock and roll. Find us wherever you find your podcast to listen to, that's the Growing Up Rock Podcast. G R O W I N U P R O C K. And feel free to hit us up at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Growing Up Rock.
So sit back and crank it up. 